This podcast is part of the Podcast Arcade Network. Welcome to the Goat Kicker Podcast. I am your host, Carl D. Smith. Welcome back to the Goad Kicker Podcast, episode 11. Dealing with a little bit of a springtime cold, so I do apologize. Uh, hopefully this episode uh, won't be too late. I'm going to try to get through as much of it as I can before my voice goes wacky. Trying to beat the cold down with some gas station coffee, which, you know, uh, as my friend Kelly Turney says, it's better than no coffee at all. But... Uh, uh, but bear with me. One interesting thing about the way I record Goad Kicker, other than I put almost no effort into it, which says, you know, pages about myself and my projects probably, but is that I I, I, I do it in my vehicle in public places. Is this how I'm comfortable doing it? Um, I don't have to worry about the dog barking suddenly. I can get some coffee. I can look out over a ball field or a city park. Last week we had a policeman stop and visit the car because uh, some people in the neighborhood wanted to know who the weird Kia was that keeps parking in the ball field in the middle of the morning and um, sitting there talking to herself. So I wasn't shooting up and uh, watching ghosts and shadow people play uh, baseball. Uh, I was uh, recording a podcast. So I chose a new venue today. I'm still in my vehicle. Um, I chose the nearly uh, abandoned parking lot at the Mall of the Bluffs and Council Bluffs. And I've parked way away from the building. There is almost literally nothing in this shopping mall. They're renovating what used to be a Target into a temporary middle school so they can renovate one of the middle schools in town. Which is the most Council Bluffs thing of all time, but that's for another story. But uh, but there's no one at this mall. There's nothing. There's no reason to go inside. There's a Planet Fitness. It tends to use its own little area of parking. Uh, the post office bought what used to be Sears and moved into it. Again, another Council Bluffs move. But the shopping mall itself is completely dead. And so there's miles of parking that just sits empty just asphalt as far as you can see and so I park out uh, in this asphalt I intentionally chose a place not by uh, you know a, a drive area where there's inputs and outputs just for some peace and you wouldn't believe how many cars drive through and kind of buzz my vehicle it's, I'm beginning to think that I'm like a paranoid schizophrenic or something like that. Like, I just think everybody's out to get me, and I've got these grand conspiracies of what's going on. It started off as fun with Moor, but it just gets to be uh, where you have to stop and wonder how often through the day, <laughs> you know, uh, if, if, you, if you think of this parking lot, if you think of this town as you know potential areas you know like a probability map like where might an electron happen boom it's here now an hour from now i'm going to map it over five uh inches away uh but it's not there it's it's now it's elsewhere and it sort of exists in this cloud and and we really only get an idea of, of that it exists at all by taking pictures of it throughout the day in time lapse and kind of see this probability chart of, of where it appeared throughout the day. Not ever really fully knowing where it is. I, I wonder if you did something like that, like where are all these vehicles through the day? Am I just occupying a place uh, that, that's a vacuum that of course is going to have vehicles drive by it because 
the probability is is that with all these vehicles and all this concrete that something's going to have to drive by here at some point during the day. I want to see the probability map of vehicular travel in Council Bluffs. And then I want to find an area where it looks like the eye of a hurricane, and I want to park in that area and record my silly little podcast. Because it's starting to weird me out how much attention, when you intentionally try to park away from traffic that your car attracts. It's ridiculous. We've started to have more of a homeless problem in Council Bluffs, Iowa than we had in the past. And so you see a lot of people that are just uh, obviously afflicted uh, financially or mentally, uh, chemically, and they are just wandering around town. And uh, no matter where I park in town, even if it's not at the city parks, you know, or, or the or the, the state park, uh, Manawa there, it could be in a parking lot. It could be in front of a church, by my house. There's just people wandering everywhere. And about once every 10 times I sit down to record something in my vehicle, whether it be this or the the, the Facebook Live v, uh, video that I do for Mega for Make Eternia Great Again, I'll have one of these shadow people walking towards the vehicle. And I always have to kind of continue to talk and and decide at what point do I disengage what I'm doing to anticipate this person approaching me. Usually they kind of break off at the last minute. But it's a real interesting phenomenon. When you try to be solitary, how much attention that attracts to you whether it be in your late model Kia SUV or as a person. And, uh, you know, it's not very conducive to uh, distraction-free podcasting. But then again, I'm the one that chose to uh, talk into my iPhone inside my vehicle as a studio. So anyway, that's just a little glimpse into the mind of Carl Smith and a little bit of how the sausage is made. They're just as uh, mind-boggling uh, amount of traffic uh, attracted to a parked running car. And maybe that's good. Maybe they're making sure that, you know, nothing shady's going on, nothing desperate. But in a city like Council Bluffs, where there's shady, desperate stuff happening and wide open, <laughs> uh, you shouldn't have to go looking for it. So, anyway, on with the show. So one of the things that happens as you grow a little bit older, uh, it's inevitable that you look backwards. I mean, uh, nerd culture has basically been hijacked with uh, nostalgia. Um, uh, you might even argue that nerd culture and nostalgia culture are uh, are inevitably entwined together into basically the same thing. Um, sort of overlapping with, uh, with the antique crowd almost. But... Um, that wasn't always the case. We we used to look, you know, forward and uh, kind of dwell in the new. And I think we still do a little bit, but we're a lot more receptive and a lot more uh, demanding of of revisiting what has come before. Um, the lexicon uh, that it requires to be a nerd is much much uh, heavier uh, than it was when I was a kid. So, or or at least it's very different. Um, your access to media is very different. Um, believe it or not, you know, uh, those of you who are my age were born at a time when you didn't have uh, on-demand access to much of anything. We literally could only watch cartoons certain times of the day on certain days of the week. The VHS uh, revolution was just sort of kicking off. Cable TV was just sort of kicking off. And so there's a lot of movies uh, that we wouldn't have access to uh, unless they uh, had an art house theater or a second run theater in town or film festivals. We couldn't just go watch uh, Akira uh, uh, Kurosawa movies. You know, if I wanted to see uh, Sanjuro or Yojimbo or uh, The Bad Sleep Well, I couldn't just go watch them. 
like it, it was sort of something you had to be fortunate enough to have access uh, to someone hip, uh, someone progressive, uh, so on. And so uh, the lexicon then, to be a nerd, was pretty basic. You had to be aware of certain things. And a lot of our exposure to the sorts of uh, background language that you needed to have to be a discerning nerd you know, came from reading secondhand about it, books that were written about the history of a certain movie or, or magazine articles. Every once in a while, there'd be a television show about the history of science fiction movie or special effects or something like that, and there would be clips of movies, and that would be the only taste of things you wanted to see. I remember that on PBS once, they had uh, uh, a documentary about American filmmakers, and in that, there was... Um, there was a clip of this movie uh, where a woman was huddling trying to hide from somebody in like this you know really seedy looking apartment or bathroom and uh, a private detective was was stalking her and um, was shooting through the drywall and uh, light and dust were pouring through the holes as the bullets one by one shot through the wall and it was such a terrifying, measured scene. It really stuck with me. And then later on, I found out that that scene was part of uh, the Coen Brothers' uh, Blood Simple. And it became one of my favorite, uh, one of those sort of crime noir, uh, modern noir, I guess, uh, type crime movies that uh, I grew to love. And, you know, I didn't know what it was at the time. But for years, I remembered that scene and it had a visceral reaction to it. And uh, before I realized I could just go rent it at my local Blockbuster or Blockbuster knockoff. <laughs> so it was harder to access uh, nerd culture then. Uh, the internet makes things definitely much easier now. Um, but the other thing is, is that the content has grown exponentially. To be a science fiction fan, uh, you know, in 1984, you know, you had your big ones, your Star Warses maybe alien and then uh you know some oddballs here and there a lot of schlock uh star trek television show but to be a science fiction fan now uh, there, there's a much larger pool of content to sift through that you're supposed to be aware of and so uh looking backwards can be can be fun but it can also be sort of overwhelming. And so what I t tend to do every now and then when I do get the bug for nostalgia, uh, as I get older and I look backwards, I try to think of the high points, things that I experienced once that were significant to me and I want to experience them again. I think that's very natural. I think that's the reason people buy, you know, silly little action figures and uh, comic books uh, that weren't really all that fantastic to start with. But it's because you're trying to relive some sort of response that you had at a period of your life when you were a lot more carefree than you are now. So I was flipping through uh, the listings on Sling TV the other day when I was folding laundry, and that's pretty much the only time I ever watch TV is if I'm sitting and folding laundry. Um, I just don't make a lot of time for television anymore, but... Um, I did manage to uh, to see that Spaceballs was on. It had just started. It was on AMC, I believe. And for those of you who are like our age, Spaceballs came out at a time when we were still starving for more Star Wars. We couldn't get enough of it. There just wasn't enough Star Wars. And maybe, you know, we didn't realize it as kids that the Star Wars as an industry was starting to die. Uh, excuse me was starting to die off a little bit as far as Star Wars goes that is but to grade school kids it just wasn't it wasn't quite there yet and, and we were growing up and so our humors had changed we thought that Star Wars was a secret language that separated us from adults that it was sort of our thing and to have this movie of adults made by Hollywood that you could see in an actual movie theater that mocked Star Wars in a loving way, in a funny way, with recognizable uh, actors. 
and sort of took pot shots at our, our beloved series of movies. It was a very significant thing. And Mel Brooks, you know, uh, one of the greatest comedians uh, of all time, has an eye and an ear for uh, for comedy and for uh, timing and, and to know how to uh, put some heart into the humor uh, as well as uh, just the right amount of cornbread in there. He knows what makes people laugh and he knows when to pump the brakes and put something kind of sweet and endearing or uh, poignant in there so that it isn't just a bunch of schlock. And so having Mel Brooks involved with this project definitely, you know, didn't hurt it. So I thought I would watch it. I fired it up, and let me tell you, Spaceballs does not hold up. There's a lot of movies that hold up for me. Uh, and it's not because it's objectively bad or that they're the ones that do hold up are objectively better. It's just that it doesn't hold up. It's, it was boring and corny, and all the jokes seem right on the nose. And I just, I don't, it's one of those things where the memory of it is more precious than the thing itself. And there are those who disagree. Uh, as I mentioned it online, there were those who immediately took issue with what I said. Uh, you know, and, and this is coming from a guy that can sit and watch the movie UHF and in, uh, unabashedly enjoy it at 44 years old. The same with Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I can sit down and watch Pee-wee's Big Adventure and I enjoy the experience. I still have that flavor memory from when I was a kid watching it. The same with movies like Strange Brew, One Crazy Summer. But for some reason, Spaceballs just doesn't do it for me. It just doesn't do it. Spaceballs was interesting because... Uh, there was always this rumor, and I never know how much credence was to it, but it was like one of those things that kids uh, share as uh, currency. You have this information that, uh, you know, there was no Snopes yet. And so if you had information that other kids didn't have, you had some sort of social currency at that time. And uh, kids would say things like, you know, I heard they're coming out with this or that. And then that kid sort of you know, gain points on the social coolness meter. Uh, and kids would tell each other that there was going to be a sequel to Spaceballs. And I don't know if that was ever literally true or just one of those things that everybody was trying to wish into existence. They definitely sort of teased that there was a sequel. And I've heard that rumor multiple times throughout my life, both as a child and then later as an adult. Um, I think Spaceballs might have been adapted into an animated series at one point. But I don't really recall ever seeing it. I don't know if that's something I saw in a vision <laughs> or if it really happened. And I could just as easily do research before I do my podcast, but why start now? But um, the long and the short of it is, is that it was something that was very beloved and uh, significant, and it's a shared memory that all of us have. But as an adult, I'm sitting there and I can't believe that they're telling the Pizza the Hut gag and, and st you know, sticking on it so long and dwelling on it. and yogurt, and the Schwartz, all those things. And another truck just drove right past me. This is absolutely ridiculous. But anyway, so Spaceballs didn't hang, in, uh, didn't hang tough for me. It was, it was something I, I didn't uh, fondly remember. So we're going to talk about two sides of this coin today. I'm going to talk about things that you d d d don't hold up when you revisit them. For me, it was Spaceballs. What is it for you? I'd like to hear over uh, at Carl Smith Writer on Twitter. Or you can send me an email, carlsmithwriter at gmail.com. I'd like to hear about the things that uh, didn't quite hold up for you. Something that you wanted to re-experience as an adult, either from your college years or high school years or from your childhood that didn't quite hold up. And I'm not here to bash these things. I just, it's the way of growing up. It's the way things go. 
I would think that certain uh, properties like that uh, do have a disposable aspect to them. And the ones that don't, you know, are special. And different ones are special to different people. It, It doesn't mean it's a terrible movie. But for me, it was a waste of time. I turned it off shortly after... Uh, they introduced uh, Pizza the Hut. I just couldn't take any more of the bad jokes. <laughs> President Scrooge had just come on the screen and I was just done with it. So what's your space balls? What's your one th- you know, one or two things that you uh, tried to re-experience that just didn't cut it for you? Again, reach out to me on Twitter or email. I'd love to hear from you. So for some reason, books get a definite uh, pass when it comes to nostalgia. Books tend to be popular for a very, very long time. Now, there are books that sort of spike in popularity and then, you know, the times move on without them. Something like Jonathan Livingston Seagull or Blessed the Beast and the Children or V.C. Andrews books. Those sorts of things that sort of are flash in the pans that might get revisited here and there uh, by, you know, generations of readers to come. You know, I imagine that Harry Potter will be something that gets a resurgence eventually, that gets rediscovered by another generation. Uh, But, you know, I don't always think that things like... uh, like... uh, uh, The Black Cauldron and... uh, you know, I, I'm blanking out here. You know, some of the David Eddings series, uh, those sorts of things. I think that they they've had their moment, and they just won't be picked up and championed necessarily by a future generation. No fault of their own. I think it's just their time came and went, and there's so much struggle for your attention and for your time and for your dollars that the new content is always going to have the edge. This is why publishers, you know, reissue books. That's why even something that's a a notable classic like The Lord of the Rings, you know, gets a nice new trade dressing every once in a while on the newsstand. This is also why books that are well-known and beloved, if they're adapted into television shows or movies, again, get a synergistic trade dress with pictures from that movie or television show on the cover as a tie-in because there's an element of new to it that they have to introduce otherwise it sort of just languishes but then you have books that are forever popular for one reason or another and and continually get read and while they may not be at the top of the bestseller list you know uh, there are things that generations continually uh, rediscover so when you talk about things like Hitchhiker's Guide or you know, uh, Terry Pratchett, who's an author I haven't started reading yet, but I know is very popular. Those sorts of things seem to find an audience uh, over and over again. So books are kind of interesting because there's no reason for, you know, Tarzan and Conan and uh, Wizard of Oz and, uh, you know, H.P. Lovecraft these sort of things that kind of keep re-emerging from the past. They still feel fresh and enjoyable, and we, we tend to be able to put them in some sort of a context that doesn't make them feel incredibly dated. Although I would argue that some of the weird fiction is incredibly dated. But what do you do? But I can sit down and read Joseph Conrad's stories and still... Uh, enjoy them greatly and uh, as my friend Ray and I were discussing uh, briefly online you can sit down and read James Bond stories and, and still get enjoyment out of those if you can put away the insane amount of racism in Ian Fleming's books but music music tends to date a little a little poorly uh there's timeless classics and they should be celebrated as such that are just always going to be a part of the American songbook. And uh, then there's stuff that you like uh, that you hang on to because of nostalgia and then there's stuff that just sounds terribly dated. And it's hard to sit through for one reason or another. 
or you know it just kind of becomes part of that soundtrack of that era so when you look at some of the disco songs that were popular uh, for instance or some of the 60's rock songs and just realize how ridiculous they are 80's hair metal 90s quote-unquote alternative music. One of the fun things that I do is I'll listen to uh, the 80s channel on my wife's Sirius XM when we're in the car. Uh, and uh, they do, uh, the original VJs from MTV are on there and they host it, you know, not live. It's not real DJing anymore. It's all pre-recorded. But they do these shows. I believe it's... Uh, Oh boy, I forget which one of them does it. I went blank. Was it Blackwood, perhaps, that does it? Um, and they'll do like what the top 20 hits are this date in one of the random 80s years. And so you only have like what 416 weeks worth of uh, shows that you can eventually hear. So you start to hear duplicates. But it's really interesting because at some random week, in one of the 80s years, the top 20, you may not remember some of those songs. And those were in the top 20 songs of that day. It's really bizarre. And I've had zero recollection for some of those songs when I've listened to those countdown shows. And I'm someone who's pretty obsessive about music. Not as much as some, and it's definitely something I've stepped away from in the last decade. But... I've listened to a lot of music, and I've listened to a lot of 80s music. Something I just put on for comfort constantly. And here are these songs that were in the top 20 that they could be completely trolling me. Some of the names of the artists ring a bell, just as being part of the greater discussion at that time. And sometimes they don't. It's really bizarre. But it was something that I have no recollection of. And every once in a while you'll hear a song and you'll be like, oh man, I remember, for some reason this makes me think of the roller rink and, uh, you know, standing in front of the Galaxian uh, arcade machine. You know, the first time that I had a real uh, toaster oven, Tostino's pizza at a roller rink, <laughs> which is an actual memory I have, by the way, in case you were worried that, you know, I was just trying to be too poetic you know, that's a little insight into what it is to be Carl Smith. I actually have a visceral memory that I carry with me four decades later of the first time I had a Tostino's pizza from a pizza oven. And it was at a roller rink. So, and I even remember whose birthday party was. It was Chad Anderson, a kid I have no idea what happened to after grade school. It was at his birthday party. We were good enough friends in grade school that I was invited to a roller skating party. And I vaguely, vaguely remember picking out a card for him at Walgreens. And it was one of the first times my mother let me pick out a greeting card for, uh, you know, a, a peer. I remember skating. I remember carpet. I remember the arcade machine. And I remember that pizza. More than anything, I remember the pizza. <laughs> It's really weird how memories work. But a lot of times with music, music ties those memories together. <coughs> Pardon me. Again, my cold. Sorry about that. So I asked, for those of you who, uh, who follow me on social media, for the sake of the show, to tell me about a song that you can still distinctly remember your feelings the first time you heard it. And we have several songs like that, but I asked for just maybe one or two examples. And so on this next segment, after I get my throat rehabbed here, I'll go through some of the ones that you guys sent in, a little something different for Goad Kicker. The content was basically written by you, so thanks for doing the work for me. And I'll go through those lists when I return after this break. 
So as I mentioned, music tends to help uh, adhere to our memories, our different senses, more than just our, our hearing. There's a sense of feeling, emotion, a sense of time and place, sometimes a scent, a flavor. It's really remarkable how music works. They've studied music quite a bit in trying to uh, rehabilitate or, uh, or treat patients with different sort of mental ailments such as Alzheimer's. And uh, there's something about music. My wife, uh, one of the first jobs she had was as a nursing aide uh, at, a, at a long-term care facility nursing home. And she often worked in the Alzheimer's wing. And I remember her telling me on several occasions that how incredible it was that when they would start Lawrence Welk's show on PBS and certain songs would come on, uh, some of the patients who were otherwise completely out of it would get up and dance. Or patients that could sit at a piano and play a beautiful song. The music has some sort of connection to our soul. It's, it's really interesting. And so I asked the listeners of Goad Kicker and those of you who follow me on social media, again, Twitter, at Carl Smith Writer. Facebook's a little more uh, restrictive. I, I tend to keep a very, very small Facebook circle. Or you can email me at carlsmithwriter at gmail.com if you ever feel so inclined. But I asked uh, those that, that, that have some give and take with our, our conversations online to give me uh, an example of a song that they still distinctly remember the first time they heard it. Where they were, how they felt, an activity they were involved in. So just to prime the pump, I distinctly remember the surroundings and the setting of the first time I heard the song Guns N' Roses' Patience. I was a big Guns N' Roses fan. I was young. I was in junior high. I had listened to Appetite for Destruction millions of times. A lot of times I had to only listen to it when I knew parents weren't within five miles of where I was because I didn't want them to hear the content of the songs. I had a dub of the tape uh, longer than I ever owned the actual tape, which was fine with me because I didn't want them to see the inner art. Matter of fact, I think when I bought... Uh, my first copy of Appetite for Destruction, I, I tore the, the linear, note, linear notes out uh, because of that rape uh, robot rape painting in there and threw it away. And I threw it away like in someone else's trash on the way home from school because I just didn't want it to be uh, in my house and give my parents a reason to take it away from me. <laughs> So anyway, I was a, I was a big Guns N' Roses fan, and so uh, they were going to appear on this music show. Again, TV was different for us than it is for kids today, so there was these events that promised uh, musicians and, and actors and actresses, and we would want to be a part of that event because that's what was on TV. That was one of your three choices that night. And they were going to perform. And for some reason, I had heard the rumor they were going to perform a, a new song. I don't know where I got that information from, but I knew that they were going to be on. I knew they were going to present something that I hadn't heard yet. And they came out, they were notoriously drunk, and they performed Patience. And I remember being so excited and, and literally sitting in front of the TV cross-legged. Like you see in every bad movie and television show ever. But that literally was me. And making sure that my mom and dad, you know, were quiet and told them, you know, don't change it. I want to make sure I see this. And, you know, they kept asking questions of who's this band, you know, and it's a rock band. You don't know their songs, but I do. And I'm a big fan. And, and then they came on and did that and looked the way they did and performed the way they did. And it just... It was a weird moment because I liked the song, but I was like, where's my welcome to the jungle? Where's my night train? 
Paradise City. And I got this. Then, of course, Patience went on to be one of everybody's favorite songs of all time, right? But I distinctly remember that. I, did, I remember sitting the way I was sitting. I remember where the TV sat in my house. I remember my mom asking all the questions about the band and trying to figure out why I was so excited about it. I remember hoping against hope that they would do something they wouldn't do something erratic and, and and offensive that would get the band banned from my household. <laughs> so I had some memories tied to that song. And so I asked some of you to share those with me. And so I'll go down a list here of some of the ones that were mentioned. John Luttrell, uh, he uh, told us that uh, Great Balls of Fire was a song that he distinctly remembers. He was pretty young when he heard it, and he said there was something about the performance and the delivery of that song that he thinks might be why he got into heavy metal music. There was just some raw energy with Jerry Lee Lewis and his performance. That's very interesting because you wouldn't expect that as an answer, but I definitely can see that. My friend Nick, you know, he get, he sent me a link, and I'm going to slaughter this Nick, but Jamma Jengi by Baba Mall. It's world music. I think the man is from Jamaica, but it's really interesting. Uh, I, I, he sent me the link. I had to wait till the next day to watch it because I was at work at the time and I wanted to be able to actually hear the song. And it, it, it's a very good song, and it, and it's not in English. <laughs> and it's it's that other voices type of music that like David Byrne really gets into. This everything about it doesn't quite sound what we're used to in the West, or at least in the American West. But it was a wonderful song. It's beautiful. We have no idea what they're saying. And there's all these voices that are these beautiful singing voices and the delivery and the rhythms. Everything is just a little foreign and a little exciting. Nick uh, admits that he was sort of a music nerd, you know, already at a young age. And that song happened to be nestled on one of those compilations that floats around with like Alternative Press Magazine or... You know, all those different samplers, especially in the CD age, that really made their ways around. And so that's how he discovered it, just this random song, you know. And it's really a beautiful story because it really captured his imagination, really fired his imagination and stuck with him. And it is a beautiful song. And so he has all these memories of, of the the disc itself and... Um, and about being introduced to the song and him, um, you know, uh, just sort of expanding his horizons through that particular piece of music. My man David Brown, you know, uh, of uh, Plague Doctor and The Magician, Modern Animals, wonderful writer. He wrote uh, One by Metallica. And that was a good choice because I think a lot of us can remember the first time we heard the song One. Uh, for those of us who didn't have cool uncles or older brothers, uh, a lot of us heard the song One the first time when the video premiered. It was the first video that Metallica made as far as I'm aware. And Metallica was one of those things that like you knew was heavy and all the Heshers had the t-shirts but you just hadn't had a chance to be indoctrinated to it quite yet. Some of us had. Some of us were metal nerds and had heard some of the songs. But for the bulk of us, I think the first time it premiered on MTV was the first time we heard Metallica, let alone the song One. I was aware of Metallica, but I didn't know that song until it premiered on the video and David's right there is something very striking with uh, the song itself being one of the greatest songs ever written uh, in America and uh, that isn't the greatest metal song that is just objectively one of the greatest songs written I think it's 
it was a, a masterpiece, uh, especially for the genre of metal, uh, because it's literate, it's well-written, um, I think it's really emotive and really uh, evocative. And uh, as David points out, at the end, there's that kind of machine gun part with the drums and the guitar. And when he'd heard that, he he knew what he wanted to do <laughs> with his fret hand the rest of his life, you know. Just incredible, incredible song and, uh, you know, uh, inspiring to a certain segment of us that, uh, you know, walk that metal path. My friend Kelly, you know, Kelly Turney, he's... Uh, manages the Raven Faith Records label. He's out managing and promoting bands uh, of different genres. I went to college with Kelly. He's a good guy and uh, has a pretty, you know, wide taste in music. Uh, he's been a music fan his entire life. And uh, he said Rockaway Beach from the Ramones. He said actually that entire album, you know, uh, Rocket to Russia... Is it Rocket to Russia or Rocket from Russia? I should know this. I don't know this. How embarrassing. But he said he wore his tape out. You know, he loved that sound, that special kind of energy that, uh, you know, the Ramones twist on punk rock. It was equal parts, you know, 50s rock and roll, uh, which I would argue that the Ramones are just a straight-up rock and roll band, right? I mean, obviously they're punkers, but... It's a rock and roll band. That's what rock and roll is, you know, that that terrible uh, Billy Joel song, it's still rock and roll to me, you know, but it, it fits. I mean, that's punk rock is what we made it, right? So uh, so he talked about that, and he can, he can definitely remember, you know, the feeling of hearing that the first time and how invigorating it was to him. Brad, uh, Brad Smith, who, uh, you know, was the proprietor of... Uh, of almost music. He's a musician in his own right. Worked at the famous uh, Antiquarium uh, record store in Omaha. And uh, huge music knowledge, uh, huge, uh, huge passion for uh, for the art form. Uh, for him, it was fight the power. You know, he was a punk rock kid, and that was the first time that he really heard uh, angry political rap music. And it wasn't that it was the first song ever written that was that way, but to him it was the first kind of insight. He couldn't believe that Public Enemy Fight the Power was able to, you know, attack political views. And, you know, he's 100% right. I can remember the first time that I heard Public Enemy in general. I was at a track meet and I had a dub of the tape. Someone had handed to me. We traded uh, recorded tapes all the time. Uh, you know, whatever you could get a hold of with whatever money or whatever you could and you hope to have something that other people didn't that was good and you would dub it off for them and they would dub off their stuff. I was able to get a bunch of music that way. A lot of us had massive collections of tapes that were, were completely uh, illegitimate, right? And I remember listening to Public Enemy at a track meet and I couldn't believe they were saying the things they were. They were talking about facing off against cops and blowing stuff up with their own paramilitary uh, force that they had as a band. They were just in your face and just calling out all these injustices, saying that the FBI was tapping their telephone. I mean, come on. Bruce Springsteen didn't say that. Elvis Costello wasn't talking about that. Public Enemy did. So that was really interesting that Brad went there because it is a significant moment. And for a lot of us, you know, small town, uh, Midwest white boys who were exposed to hip hop at about the same time through uh, the filters of, of radio and MTV, it's a miracle that we heard that stuff to start with and that some of it even was able to eke through. There's no good reason in the world that uh, Fight the Power by Public Enemy couldn't have been completely censored and held down for us to hear. We were still rocking poison at maximum 
volume in western Iowa at the time when that came out unapologetically but it cut through there was something special about Public Enemy there was something special uh, especially about the song Fight the Power unfortunately a lot of us went on to think that we also were going to fight the power not realizing that we were the power or were benefiting from the power But it was definitely like one of those paradigm shift moments. It was for those of us who um, were into music, uh, suddenly became aware of the power of music through hip-hop. And for those of us of a certain age, hip-hop was our punk rock. It wasn't that punk rock died and went away or, or ceased to be potent. But punk rock in the 70s and hip-hop in the 80s, especially in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, <clears throat> had a lot of an analog together. Probably because punk rock, <clears throat> excuse me, stole a lot of what was great about it from some of the cultural and, uh, dare I say, racial uh, divisions in music. But like anything that's DIY that originates organically at a street level before it becomes a fashion and a product... There's sort of a purity to it. There's sort of a message to it. It's a passion project for the people. It's a lifestyle who are involved with it. Just like the early days of metal. Again, punk rock. Death metal. Black metal. All those, all those genres that sort of started in a culture or, or a scene... And with hip-hop, it was a marginalized scene. And they had a lot to say about it. So that was a good choice. My friend Kyle. Kyle is a, is a saxophone player, amongst other things. Big music head. He said Mighty Healthy by Ghostface Killa. The first time he heard it, he, he wept. I'm not familiar with that song. I'll be honest with you. I've never heard that song. But it's interesting for someone uh, with as diverse taste as Kyle. And I don't know Kyle incredibly well. I've only met him within probably the last year or so. But he has a pretty diverse taste in music. So it's interesting that he chose that. I expected him to choose some uh, free jazz of some sort because he's really into that his knowledge of jazz music uh, is probably analogous to my knowledge of 80's metal it's pretty deep pretty appreciative maybe more so he probably knows more he's worked around the record stores and what have you so you know he probably has uh, some real nuts and bolts understanding and the dude plays, so like anything, uh, your knowledge uh, is a little more legitimate when <laughs> it's something that you've been involved with uh, rather than us armchair uh, armchair fans. So Mighty Healthy by Ghostface Killa. Maybe we all should just go out and listen to that on Spotify and, uh, and figure out what was so significant to Kyle about that song. The last one I'll touch on is my friend Jeff. Jeff's a great guy. Uh, I met Jeff over the internet, actually through a Facebook group at one time about a bunch of old dudes that uh, still skateboard. Uh, Jeff lives in the Midwest as well. He's got a heart for uh, for God and uh, skateboarding both. Um, he, he's, he's a man after my own heart where he uses uh, his uh, resources as he can uh, to kind of further uh, good work. And, uh, and, and whether that be through skateboarding or through, uh, you know, his, his, the way he lives his life or his family, uh, he does good things. And, uh, but like a lot of us, you know, he had that cool background. He had that, you know, 
uh, skateboard rock and roll music background, you know. And he's always coming at religion from a similar way for me. We we all walk different paths, so I don't want to speak for him, but you know, I think he's got a real street level understanding of of outreach, of uh, of ministry, and of faith. And so Jeff, you know, for him, one of the most tr- transformative moments in his life was the Suicidal Tendencies album, the first debut album. He remembers his neighbor giving him a copy of the album, and he had to hide it. He had to hide the album inside another album cover because he didn't want his parents to see it because even the word suicide on there would get it taken away immediately. And he said he had no idea what to expect. The first time he dropped the needle on it and heard suicide's an alternative, it blew his mind. It was so angry. And it, he said it was the kind of music that just drove you. It drove you to want to hear more music like it. It drove you wanted to listen to it. It drove you to want to go outside and skate. It made you feel alive. And you know what? That's right. It's 100% right. Some of that music is terrible. It's objectively bad music. Some of that heavy metal, some of that punk that some of us just love. But it was seminal because it came from a very real place and it hit certain emotions and certain nerves. Maybe they were the nerves of the time. Maybe they'll never hit that nerve again. Or maybe they have a perennial voice with youth culture. So that was a fantastic addition. It kind of, I'm glad someone brought up uh, an album like that because it's something easy to kind of write off as like a dirtball album. Not that people listen to suicidal tendencies or dirtballs, but you know, it's one of those things you kind of seen uh, the beat up cassette tapes in, on the floor of somebody's car in high school, or you saw the album at a record store. And it just didn't look like something you'd be into, right? But there's all those albums out there, you know, M.O.D., uh, Halloween, Suicidal Tendencies, Destruction, Creator with a K, Celtic Frost. All these types of music that you wonder who in the hell listens to it. Who's listening to Voivod, really? And it turns out some of us are. And people respond very strongly to those bands. I can't tell you how many times I've seen t-shirts for bands that I've I've never actually met someone that actually was familiar with their music. And, and in a social setting. Guys like Brad and Kyle, when I sit down with them, they're going to know the germs. They're going to know the meat men. The circle jerks. They're going to be aware of those bands. Swans. But I see those t-shirts on people publicly. They're marginally aware of, of what they represent. Because those sorts of things become sort of flags or statements or fashion. Not that there's a lot of people busting down the door to wear a meat man shirt. But there was a time in the 90s when we would wear anything. And it just seemed like the thing to do to wear these punk rock t-shirts, right? But for ever 50 people that have that t-shirt or bought that album and listened to it once, there's some kid who had changed his life. Not because of what they said or how they played, but just because of the energy. Somehow just synchronized with them. And as Jeff said, it drove them. It drove them forward. Maybe some of them it drove to, you know... Adderall addiction, <laughs> you know, amphetamine use. And others it drove to create, to experience life. So that was sort of a fun, uh, fun little experiment. I, I really enjoyed hearing everybody's recollections. It was fun uh, to get those songs together. It really was an unexpected list. I could not have guessed a single one of those songs that were sent to me. And I'd still entertain more. If you're hearing this episode and you got left out, I'd love to hear it. I'd love to hear what your song is or your your album. And if you're like me, there's dozens. It's going to be hard to pick just one. 
But there's something special about a song that sticks with you, that carries that memory, that unlike Spaceballs, holds up for you. Even when the the production values or the the instruments used or uh, what we found out about the different musicians involved with the song socially since then... With all this sort of uh, amassed uh, uh, negativity that, that history can accumulate to beat down art, when it's still able to shine through, there's something really special about that. And it doesn't always have to be the Beatles. It doesn't always have to be Carol King, the Beach Boys. Sometimes it's My Bloody Valentine. Sometimes... It's Richard Hell. (coughs) Excuse me. You can't pick who you fall in love with. So it's kind of fun just to look back and see which songs were significant to us and remain significant still. Well, that wraps it up for episode 11 of the Goat Kicker. My throat and my nose have decided that I am done. Actually, I'm a little long from where I wanted to be on this episode. It's something I could talk about forever. But I've got to be a good steward of your time and your patience with my voice. And here's another car driving by. This will be the sixth car to buzz me to just peek in my cab and see what I'm up to. This is outstanding. So uh, next time you see me, I'll be wearing a tinfoil hat and looking nervously over my shoulders, wondering why there's this giant conspiracy of people trying to track my movements and spy on Goad Kicker's recording. You're watching a breakdown happen in process, which, you know, is kind of a theme of Goad Kicker. It's happened maybe twice before, so why not on the new version of the show, right? There's another one that kind of veered off at the last minute. She just looks lost. She doesn't really look like a creeper. So anyway, I'm glad we had a chance to talk about some music that meant some things to us. I really love music. I really, uh, I divorced myself from being a music person. It got expensive. It gets needlessly emotional. And it's just time-consuming. But it is something I remain passionate about. I just can't maintain the voracious uh, voracious appetite I had at one time for music. But the ones that I do remember, the albums, the songs, the bands, the visuals... Those moments in time, I, I, I'll get to keep those with me forever. And in some small way, they kind of get to be a doorway to the past. And so, you know, uh, a lot of art forms do that for us. Uh, TV shows, movies, uh, comic books, books, like I mentioned. They carry some sort of emotional weight with them that isn't obvious necessarily to everybody who views that same thing. And so it's nice that you guys share those things with me, and I hope you don't mind that I shared some with you. Uh, I think it's fun to reflect about, and, uh, you know, I think it's healthy. I think that is where nostalgia is healthy. When we uh, talk about things in context of, uh, of when they occurred and what was happening at that moment in our lives, instead of scratching with you know broken nails at like frozen earth trying to dig for that feeling that I had when I was 14 years old and no cares in the world and everything was either the first time I experienced it or just made me horny we can't feel that way again we don't get to wake up in the morning and and just hope that uh, they can bum enough money from dad to get bean burritos from 
Taco Bell and listened to the Bullet Boys on a battery-powered boombox and uh, while you played home run derby with your friends in the front yard with wiffle balls and have that be what your agenda was for the day. You don't get to do that again. And it's not a crime that that doesn't get to happen again. That's just life. And nostalgia becomes a problem when we say that those days being taken from us is wrong and I'm going to put all of my time and money and resources into trying to recreate that moment in time. That's when nostalgia is wrong. That's when it's harmful and that's when uh, nerd culture gets ugly and we've talked about that in the past. But where nostalgia culture I think is healthy is when we put it into context. It's okay to put it into the frame of where I was at that time, how old I was, the relationships I had, the responsibilities, the things that weren't going so well, the things that were going well, things that are better now versus then. And just use those things, that comic book, that action figure, that piece of music, to remind you of some significant point in your life's diary. It's good to do that every once in a while. It's okay to revisit those things responsibly and appropriately. But for real, if you guys want to play a wiffle ball, give me a call. Until next time, take it easy.